we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Welcome to another episode of This Does Not Compute, the CSIS technology podcast. Today, our guests are two venture capitalists who will give us an inside view. They had their own startup. They sold it. They've gone into the VC world and done quite well. And we've got some inside tips on what a VC looks for, what a VC thinks about when they hear a pitch. So our guests, Tracy Young and Ralph Guti, are some of the leading VCs in the Bay Area. We're happy to have them on the show. Do you want to each tell the audience a little about yourselves, how you got into this, what you're doing now? Hi, my name is Ralph Guti. I started my career at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory as a ballistic missile defense researcher. After that, I worked at Sony and uh, worked with Google on their first Android phone. Following that, I was a rendering engineer at Pixar. I worked on Toy Story 3, Cars 2, and Brave. And after meeting Tracy, we decided to start a company called PlanGrid and exited that about a year or two ago. Hi, my name is Tracy Young. I was a construction engineer by trade, and I ended up building a construction software with Ralph and a few other co-founders. And I led the company as CEO for eight years before we sold the company over to Autodesk in 2018. And then after that, we spent some time integrating our company into the mothership at Autodesk. And we also spent some time working for Y Combinator, where we focused on early stage investing. What was that like? What was the integration process like? Sometimes it can be bumpy and sometimes it can be smooth. Personally, I landed on the moon. Whatever made me a good founder made me a terrible public company employee. And so our contract was set to end in 18 months and they cut us out at 12, (laughs) 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 which is unheard of for acquired in founders. Well, I've heard that story before. It's a different kind of personality. Was it rough for you, Ralph? I actually built our first integration from a technical perspective between Autodesk and PlanGrid. And, you know, I got into some strategic differences pretty quickly with the, the main kind of team. I liked them. I respected working for a public company for a while, a lot of respect for Autodesk, but I'm really happy that I don't work for Autodesk anymore. It was fascinating, I think, for us to see the limitations as well as strengths of a public company. Having to open up your books and talk to Wall Street analysts every three months makes it so that the obvious courageous decisions can't be made for one reason or the other. Whereas in a startup, we can make that decision over lunch as a team, suffer the consequences of it, whether it's right or wrong, and then make another decision the next day. That's really interesting because you hear that a lot, that the change in cultures and the attitudes towards risk in particular. The public traded company, by default, they're going to have a different approach to risk. What technologies are you excited about now? I mean, what are you thinking about? You've done the Y Combinator thing. You did the startup and the merger. 
what what are you looking at now? What is the most interesting to you? It's it's funny because we as partners we invest together, and the technology piece is always the part that Ralph is in charge of evaluating. So I'll let you take this question. Technology. So I have like two perspectives on technology. One is I'm still an active developer. So as somebody that still writes code, reads codes, edits other people's code, frequently I'm really into cross-platform technology. I think that the platform approach with Apple, Google, and anyone else decides to build their own app ecosystem is just kind of was deadening for me at PlanGrid mm-hmm. as a product leader. Having to develop four applications just really set us back. So personally, I'm interested in cross-platform technology mm-hmm. as an investor. My experience is in construction technology, so that's where I spend my time. That's mm-hmm. what I'm interested in. I sit on two boards. Both of them are very interesting to me. One of them is called M-Suite. The other one is called Avir. And they both kind of focus on construction technology from opposite sides where M-Suite's prefabrication, which is a very popular word, but prefabrication actually at like the pipe, wood, you know, the component level. Things that are already being prefabricated. There's a lot of efficiencies there. Those systems aren't even connected to like the cloud yet. And M-Suite's helping that happen. So that prefabrication automation of like pipes and actual fitting stuff that we're doing today can be tracked all the way from design to the field. That's very cool mm-hmm. to me. And then on the opposite side, Avir is very, once the building's built using all the point clouds and everything we know from laser scanning a building to try to cross-reference it with what the owner and the designer had intended to kind of see like, okay, the deviation analysis basically between what was meant to be built and what was built. That's very interesting to me. Those are two of the construction technology perspectives. I really like prefabrication, but not, you know, prefabricating residential homes, more so commercial, getting stuff to the field quickly and, you know, built to spec. And then also digital twin reality capture, trying to see, you know, we have a one model of the bu- what I mean by digital twin is you have a 3D representation of the building that mm-hmm. is uh, completely virtual. And then you have a physical scan of the building that's also three-dimensional and trying to understand the differences between the two. You talked about digital twins. What are you doing with that? One of the things that's changing that I don't think people have caught up with is the uses of things like digital twins, the visual and the digital planning possibilities it creates. Oh, I love it. I I love using the word just to help define it better. Even years ago, people would ask us, they were literally as thought leaders in construction technology, we'd be brought around the world. And the question would be, what does it mean, digital twin? That was often it. And it's just basically you have a physical representation that's been a scan. You have a digital representation. You need to make sense of the two. Honestly, my experience in ballistic missile defense was all about radar technology and scanning objects and trying to figure out what it was from a tracking perspective you know, if you could figure it out. And the process is similar with deviation analysis. I find the the mathematics and the technology very advanced and very interesting and very like useful. It's like the type of math and the type of engineering that actually is application in the real world and deviation analysis in particular, because before we never had accurate scans at the level we had. Mm -hmm. So there'd be nothing to really care about. You'd have to measure it yourself, which was a manual process that Tracy can talk more about. She actually, you know, worked with people that did that. I've only seen it from the the kind of futuristic laser scanning perspective. Tracy, what does that mean? You crawled around on your hands and knees with a tape measure or what? Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Only when I needed to. In Washington, there's trends, flavors of the week, and digital twin is not yet one of the trends, but I see it a lot in companies. So I've been hearing it from many companies about this. Do you still invest? Are you still investing? I mean, how do you pick them? 
probably made about a dozen investments this year. We're down a bit for the summer. It was helpful that we got to see the best of YC uh, working there and getting getting to know the founders personally. So aside from technology, which obviously without uh, the technical part, there's really nothing when it comes to startups. What we also look for is domain expertise mm. in the founding team. We look for characteristics of grit and gumption. It's such a hard journey that mm-hmm. it's just going to take a high level of pain tolerance and someone who's just going to keep going and run through walls for whatever reason, whether it's their passion, whether it's something they're angry about, whether it's a chip on their shoulder. And so I think a lot of the times we look at the founders and and especially if they remind us of ourselves from 10 years ago, mm-hmm. we need to fund this team. On top mm-hmm. of that, I think out of the dozen investments we made this year, we really focused on diversity as well. We were really personally as a female founder and CEO, I was really upset to see the figures from 2020. That investment in in women leadership went down in a in a year where there's a ton of investment. And so the great news is there are many talented diverse founders out there and they are looking for funding to to help them build their companies just like everyone else. And so we were able to back several founders that we're really excited about. So we we really look at the founding team aside from the technology. Their ability to sell is also something that's really important. So much of the yeah. founder's job is it feels like a constant sales job, whether you're selling to investors, whether you're selling to customers or even people you want to recruit, it's just a constant sales motion. And so we also look for clarity in communication and just their ability to articulate complex ideas simply. The reason for that is because we think the best salespeople are not people who are selling you. They're just able to explain to you why you should care about this thing that they're, they're trying to tell you about. How often do you find that? I mean, of the, every 10 people you talk to, is it one? Is it three? You have to project the future ability of them to sell. That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And even if they don't have it now, we have to believe that they have the potential to grow. And that's mm-hmm. that's hard. I don't know how you tell that. Usually in conversations, actually, yeah. you could probably tell really quickly. I mean, our yeah. interviews at YC, when we pick companies to fund, are only 10 minutes. Um, really? We're looking yeah. for... That's different. For founders who can listen and to oh, actually be able to absorb the conversation versus monologuing at us oh my for God. 10 minutes. The, the worst is when they monologue, they start the conversation with their pitch, you know, and it's just not, we go, I mean, many times that, that would be a failing interview. We really like going into the, the nitty gritty of what they're building. We already understand. We've already seen yeah. the same idea yeah. in different regions. You know, we've seen it in Latam and Nigeria. And so now we're seeing it in Europe and we already understand like the market. We understand yeah. the dynamics. We have specific questions. It's also their ability to actually answer a question yes. specifically, clearly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. You mean off the cuff, not the one. Off the cuff, yeah. Answer. Yeah. How do you find these guys now? Do you have a network? Do you go out? Do you, especially now with restrictions on gatherings? It's it's really nice that we just have this flow of inbound leads for us, for our family office now. We, we get a lot of construction technology folks or anyone adjacent to the industry. Yeah. Maybe they're doing what Planger did for manufacturing or prefabrication. And so we get intros or just founders reaching out for that. I get a lot of diverse candidates or founders reaching out, usually 
woman founders who are just asking me about my journey. Yeah. So it's really nice to be able to be a small part of their journey. And then I think for you, you probably get a lot of just technical founders that ping you for advice, I'd imagine. Yeah, I get a lot of inbound from technical requests. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, we're in a very lucky position to be able to have exited a company and shown our abilities. But, you know, what we're, I think is like, it's, we're leveraging our our expertise in kind of gathering people that are interested in that expertise. And that's like a, a nice way because we generally understand their businesses better when they're looking for our expertise in the first place. But YC, honestly, Y Combinator is a really powerful network. I really, you know, we were part of YC. We were visiting partners at YC. There's a lot of great reasons that it's such a powerful network, but it still today just seems to be, I mean, Demo Day is their kind of day where they all the startups pitch Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, two days right now digitally. So that's one way we get around COVID to your earlier point. And there'll be a ton of, there'll be too many leads for me to deal with from demo day. Honestly. Really? Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think diversity is a problem? I'm a little surprised at that. Why do you think you're not seeing that much diversity in the startup side? I mean, my strong opinion is, and this is speaking firsthand is, technology and the tech industry is sexist. You can see it by the numbers. You can see it by the questions that investors ask women founders versus male founders. There's studies on this and it's subconscious, I'm sure, but I think it's important to understand that these bias phenomenons are happening so that we can just sort of try to work ourselves out of it. I think it's cultural. I don't think anyone is just trying to be discriminatory against women. No one would ever admit to that. Everyone wants to support women, but our our culture is what it is. It'd be interesting to take your, to hear your take on it. I mean, I obviously come from a very specific point of view. I think, you know, without naming names, there's one company in particular, I'm thinking when we talk about diverse companies, this is a female founder, female CEO, female CTO developer. And it sounds like, you know, oh, diversity, we're just trying to, you know, do what we can to balance out our diversity portfolio. But these founders are exceptional. This company in particular already has A16Z, which is a, you know, top tier investor as a backer and is already like, you know, doubled or tripled in its way it measures revenue. So they found funding, but they had to maybe work a bit harder, I think, to get there than other companies. But the newer generation does seem to be more supportive, I've noticed. Like for instance, a lot of early angel investors now or people that were involved in technology companies like Uber or Facebook, and now they have enough money to invest. And those type of investors, at least from when I look at the cap tables, the, the summary of who's invested, they seem to be more in the diverse investments with me, I've noticed at least. So do you think it's generational? So will this change then just with time? Or- I hope so. I hope so, because I think we're, we're missing out on a lot of, we're missing out on half the population and, and the brains that come with it and the grit that comes with it. I like an activist approach. I think it's getting better, but I like trying to do something about it. For instance, I remember a female developer when we were trying to hire more females. Plinkert had an excellent female developer to male ratio at certain points, like a 35% even, which was like unheard of in the industry at certain points. (laughs) And then, you know, where do we lend on? Do you remember in the 20s, something like that, 25 yeah, the, the stats aren't good, but we we tried our best. We tried our best. You know, we we won that race that was already not even close to 50-50, but we were pretty competitive when it came to our ratio of female developers to male developers. And I remember asking one of the female developers what she thought we could do, right? Uh, and then mentioning that I noticed there was indeed a pipeline issue 
that everyone will talk about. And her response to that was, well, then you have to really specifically reach out to females rather than just waiting for the pipeline to come in. She was like, maybe a little aggravated by my my pipeline comment, but I really liked, I really liked her response. And so that's one of the things as an engineering leader that I've always tried to do is be more active in the female development community. For instance, there's an organization in San Francisco called Girl Geek. We often hosted our office out to this female development group, and that would be a great recruiting source for us and also help us be part of the community and help us kind of be more active rather than just kind of waiting for the pipeline to come in. Does the educational system produce the kind of people you need? Is there an imbalance there? You know, so when you look at STEM education... Yeah, it's been a long time since I looked at the stats. Um, If we look at STEM, it it just includes so many different types of profession. And actually, if we look at it, it's it's pretty close to 50-50 as STEM, mostly because in the sciences and healthcare professions, it's, it's actually predominantly women. But that's missing out on all the engineering side. I mean, you look at comp sci, it's like in the single digits. I mean, it got to double digits, maybe the teens, but I think it's back down to the single digits. And certainly in in construction engineering, it's a very small percentage. It's very poor in comp sci. It's very unfortunate. I was a math major. So my my background's mathematics. And in math, it was actually on 50-50. My undergrad and my master's was 50-50 between researchers at NSA, encryption people, or just teachers, you know, mathematicians often become teachers themselves. And so it was weird for me going into engineering, you know, when I worked for a government contractor versus when I was an academic, because it just changed, the ratio changed so much to Tracy's point Mm -hmm. earlier. Do you ever miss that part? Do you ever miss uh, the NSA, JHU, APL? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved that work. I loved that job. That was very fun for me. I miss it quite a bit. You know, it's still where I'm from. I'm from the DC area. So like, you know, my friend's are all still in kind of that community. So I still get it through my my social network, but the math that you get access to there is really fun. And I have a, I have a good time building what I'm building now, which is a lot different. But when you get access to that scale of data, it's very enticing. Yeah, there's actually a whole startup community now around Fort Meade from mm-hmm. people who graduated. It's funny because you can tell from their bios because it will say like, John has worked in the field for 20 years. It doesn't say anything else. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> How hard is that to figure out? One of the things that's really interesting around that type of technology that I find interesting since we are talking about tech earlier is yeah. drones. I find drones really fascinating. One of the investments we did a long time ago was called Airspace. And they're all about drone capture and recovery as mm-hmm. far as defenses go. And I think Tracy sits on the board of a really cool company too. I'm on the board of Drone Deploy. We build drone software. We basically turn drones into flying robots, but that's actually not the hard part. The hard part is all the calculation and math we do on top Uh of data we collect. And so Drone Deploy is used in in construction. It's used in agriculture. It's used in energy. Anyone who owns a lot of land and needs to figure out what's changing with their assets. How did you end up on the board of a drone company? Yeah, I'm learning a ton about drones yeah. on my end through the company. It turns out I, after spending 15 years in construction and nine of which writing software for the construction industry and selling into one of the yeah. construction technology experts in the world. Yeah, the construction industry is a big buyer yeah. of drones for job sites. Yeah. I just got briefed by some company that makes drones that use AI so they don't crash. That's their big selling point. We actually, we had DJI, the Chinese drone company, come in. They fit in a suitcase. You know, it's like basically, and they're really cool. But DJI is, it's still sort of a line of sight for flying. 
And this company, you control it over the internet and it has six cameras and onboard programming. So you, you don't have, you don't actually have to fly it. You kind of point where you want it to go yeah. and then it goes there. So it was, it was really cool. After DJI came in, we bought a drone for the program, uh, really cheap from Walmart and it tends to crash a lot. So I, I really appreciate the no crashing. Crashed a couple of drones as well. I've crashed a few drones. It's easy to do. It's pretty fun. To, it's pretty fun. It turns out trees can be above you, not just in front. <laughs> you know, and DC has that. You're not allowed to fly drones outside in DC. So I admit perhaps we tested the law unintentionally, of course, uh, a couple of times. But because what I really want to do is buzz our CEO's office. I'll pitch one company to you that we have no investment in just because it's really cool when we're talking about drones, which is Skydio. And they're a US company and they also have obstacle avoidance, like you were saying. And, you know, I don't remember how much they are, but sub $1,000 gets you an incredibly nice drone. So if your program's looking to upgrade, I would definitely go to Skydio. You were the ones who came in and talked to me. That's what their discussion was to me, that the people who like this the most are the people who have to inspect bridges and buildings. The UC is helicopters and helicopters are so expensive, so dangerous. A drone is so much more efficient than a helicopter cost-wise and manpower-wise. How do you keep up with what's going on in in the market? I mean, how do you, is it networks? Is it? We just live our day-to-day lives. I don't go out of my way to try to keep up with the market other than reading news. And, you know, we try to invest in things that we personally like. It's usually, I feel like we've made a a mistake on an investment when I have to call a bunch of my friends and try to learn more about the market. And it's like, clearly I'm just not interested about this, but I, for some reason, have this fear of missing out on this, this one opportunity. How do you keep up as a technologist? Well, that's my advantage is I'm still an active developer. I mean, it's really, you know, I understand AI from a mathematical level. I studied it and I program daily. So I'm not great anymore. I got to be honest with you. I'm not like as hot shot as I used to be as a developer, but I'm pretty active still. And uh-huh. so technology changes. I'm very, I'm very interested in the DevOps space. I think that's a very unique, interesting space in investment and developers are here to stay. We know that mm-hmm. a lot of jobs will be replaced by automation that requires software that developers write. So developers need a lot of background tools called developer operations to do mm-hmm. their job. And so yeah. I use these tools. I actively use new technologies as a developer to make sure as an investor, I know, I know what's going on in the market. For instance, I'll give you an example of this. There is a lot of opportunities in two-sided marketplaces now where, you know, basically connecting a seller to a buyer from an economics perspective. eBay and Amazon aren't really keeping up and there's allowing a lot of new cool companies to come in there. You know, two, for example, one's uh, Whatnot, one's Queenly. Both of these companies, one sells a variety of different things. I would say just Funko Pops and Fig Pins and all kinds of other things, but they, they sell all kinds of comic books and all kinds of stuff now, basically live sales and stuff, which is really popular now in Asia, coming to the US and they're ahead there. And Queenly is a marketplace for used really fancy dresses, beauty pageant dresses. Those are two examples of two-sided marketplaces that have popped up that are really cool. And then there, I'll pitch you a final third company. We're investors in all these companies. We think they're <laughs> the best. The, uh, the, the third company is one called Promoted AI that builds tools for the two-sided marketplaces to get marketplace ranking, which is actually a really hard mathematics problem. It's only people like Google, Pinterest know how to solve this, and that's where all the founders come from. So what I'm getting to is that that's one way I keep up is I myself understand the technology, and then I follow how companies like Goat, you know, whatnot, Queenly keep keep growing in the two-sided marketplace side 
and they need services themselves. You know, I think of Promote AI, not necessarily developer operations, but tools that these other companies need to live. Tell us what a two-sided market is. A great example of this is eBay. eBay is the, that's the quintessential sure. example of a two-sided marketplace. You've got a seller, you've got a buyer. eBay is no, it's asset light is the fancy technical term for it from the investment side. But eBay does not hold the shoes or the watches. It connects the seller to the buyer and takes a transaction fee. And for some reason, eBay has been able to dominate this. Etsy as well will be another two-sided marketplace. Amazon is a two-sided marketplace. They have uh, used goods on there too. Um, But these things are all kind of dated and the newer approaches are all mobile first. They're with live sales and these companies are not keeping up. They're also specific. Yeah, yeah, they're very specific. You go onto eBay and you're looking for a mismatch of whatever it is. These marketplaces that we, Ralph just mentioned, it's very specific. You are a beauty pageant queen. You're looking for your next 10 dresses. You're going to go onto Queenly. Mm -hmm. You're a collector. You you are a collector of these very cute little Funko Pops and (laughs) what have you. You're going to go over here because the inventory is so much more. And the pricing is actually more (laughs) accurate than a place like Amazon or eBay. Yeah, I'm a little surprised at eBay. They were like one of the first, and so I know what they looked like when they started, and yeah. they don't look that different. They're kind of asking to be knocked off. Surprised someone hasn't. I talked to some Chinese investors back before all the ruckus, and they said that one of the things they were interested in is how to get into the American market to replace eBay. So I know I'm not the only one who thinks they're past their sell-by date. Now's the time. I think these two-sided marketplaces, all the ones we just mentioned, are really well-backed. They're all growing fast. They're all with great founders. Well, I mean, at least Queenly and, and whatnot and promoted. You know, what I'm getting to is that these things are happening right now. The eBay replacements, it's happening. But it will be in specific things, not mm-hmm. the flea yeah. market approach that sort of eBay has. Not to be critical of eBay. I still use it once a year. There's some reason I have to use eBay. Tracy, you said you invest in what you're interested in. What are the parts yeah. you're interested in now? Well, I spent five years working on a construction site. And yeah. then after that, decided to build construction software to make the industry better. Really wow. simple technology, we, I mean, very hard technology, but simple problem that we were solving with get rid of paper on construction site because it wasn't serving anyone. And certainly not the 5,000 people out in the field trying to figure out what version to build off of. And we've spent the last almost 10 years building an enterprise software company. We got to see firsthand how the existing dev tools and existing enterprise software didn't help us build our company. We scaled from five co-founders to 500 people from nothing to 100 million in recurring revenue. And the software that we had to use made us less productive. Unbelievable, because we were spending millions of dollars to make these systems work, along with a lot of humans involved and a lot of of consultants in between trying to connect the systems together. And so the technologies that I'm interested in are usually enterprise software, at least the ones I know intimately. I think about the problems and challenges we had scaling and growing our company and it was just such a mismatch. I mean, even, even with a whole team of technical people trying to make it work for us, it was such a hodgepodge of solutions that we're using. To be specific, we're talking about trying to see company metrics, you know what I mean? Just simple yeah, things yeah. like money in, you know, like by product line involved like three or four interconnections between Salesforce and NetSuite and our internal systems and blah, blah, blah. It was, it was really a pain in the butt. It was always to answer a question we had about our business. 
how does our customer base look like? Which areas are we growing? Which segments are we growing and which ones are we doing? And we couldn't answer those questions, even though we had all this data across all these different disparate uh, solutions. Did you write your own? Was it homebrew or what did you do? We ended up writing several of our own. The team we built to develop the dashboards and analytics we need to run our business, which is B2B SaaS in particular. Mm -hmm. It's not that new of a business type, but it is, it is new enough that there's not tools built for B2B SaaS. You got to write this yourself. And so we had, I mean, these are some, a doctorate in physics who is a data scientist who runs data science at Brexdow. He was one of the authors of this, a really like, you know, master's in finance dude that was really good under a really good manager with a really good CFO. The whole team was rock stars, mm -hmm. but it took five or six people a few months to write the type of tools we needed, mm -hmm. which were basically, it was ETL tools is one way to look at it from a data perspective, but pulling data in from all these sources, translating it so it makes sense to us, mm -hmm. and then visualizing it with a tool. We used a tool called Looker, which was new at the time, but now is kind of kind of dated to be able to actually visualize and slice and mm -hmm. cut the data because the data was too intense for Excel or Google Sheets or something like that. So it was, a, it was a team and a combination of tools to make this work for us. And we did make it work. So the technology we're interested in, we we try to envision having this technology while we were building PlanGrid. And if it's this moment of like, man, do I wish we, we had that in 2017, 2018, 2014? It's usually something we would want to invest in. But those aren't the companies you're investing in, are you? Those are the companies you're looking for? I mean, are they some of the companies you're investing in? We've invested in some enterprise SaaS mm -hmm. companies. He mentioned DevTools as one. Those We yeah. use a lot of those solutions and actually they're just getting better and better. Again, for me, it's it's not sector industry specific. I only mentioned enterprise software because it's it's an area outside of construction that we feel knowledgeable in. We, we want to see domain expertise again on the team. If they can help us understand why it's so painful and we can feel it. I mean, we don't know anything about beauty patent dresses, <laughs> but when, when two founders who are, you know, both beauty pageant winners, as both well. beauty pageant yeah. winners are <laughs> describing know. the problem to us. And we're like, Whoa, that seems awful. And <laughs> this is the solution we built. It's, it's hard not to back them. And the $9,000 Mrs. Peanut dress. It's not Mrs. Peanut. It was like a peanut festival dress. Yeah. And these dresses are tens, you know, tens of thousands. And of yeah. value. Whoever was telling me about it was you know, it's a, it's like really a big business. Yes. Beauty yeah. pageants. And it's like, yeah. And you, you don't wear it twice. You don't wear these dresses twice. I didn't know that either. I mean, yeah. cause it's like, how many of us don't wear the same t-shirt <laughs> twice? I mean, so, but it's not a t-shirt. So I learned that this is really a cool part. So are you looking for places where the market hasn't filled in? Is that what you do? Or are you looking for places where you think there's a a oh, demand a signal that question. people haven't picked up. I think there's opportunities. I mean, you know, eBay is an example. You'd think that this is a yeah. category that's very full with yeah. a behemoth here, but I think it's clearly underserving the market. So that, that gives way to opportunity. I mean, one quick note, when I look at what we're investing in, going back to that question earlier, I think it's it's founders for sure. That's what Tracy was getting at with mm -hmm. the gumption, the grit. And then it's product for me. Yeah. It's like, what does their product look like? How does it work? How do they market? How do they talk about it? Does that product market fit yet? I mean, do people buy it and use it and love it? Give it five stars on the app store and stuff. So those are the two kind of- so My favorite question to ask Ralph after I've evaluated sort of the market and business is- it's his turn to evaluate into the technology side. I'd look at him. It's like, how hard would it be for you to build this? It's like, it'd be hard. Okay. How about five good engineers? 
And he'd say something like five good engineers, maybe 18 months. And it's like, okay, that's pretty hard. Or he'll say five good engineers and three months. It's like, we can't invest in this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So hard is good. Yeah. 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 Well, we try to find stuff that has a Peter Thiel is that zero to one book that it has a lot of really good notes in it. And one of them yeah. is like, you know, cancer curing technology. Well, it yeah. turns out in software, we don't normally find cancer curing technology. So the best we can do to kind of judge technical complexity is how long would it take me with a team of the best crack shot team to develop this? Just five to eight people. So there's no management or anything like that. If I just had that team, how long would it take me to build this one thing? And that it's, number is yes, really helpful. It's an indicator of how many competitors you're going to have yeah. in the next if there's any success at all you're going to get ripped off just yep. like we, we we got ripped off all the time in software there's no you know we had patents but you can't really patent software you just move buttons around and then that's it our biggest competitor hired a bunch of juniors or new grads and then hired literally 30 or 40 of them in santa barbara and just ripped our product off this is Procore, by the way uh they had a little video for it so i can say it out loud they had a little i have video a lot of admiration for yeah. what they did well we're investors i have some Procore stock now so but at the same time this was our biggest competitor that just like totally ripped us off they copy and pasted yeah. our help article at one point accidentally you know one of the interns did it i'm sure so i'm sure they improved that quickly but you know we got ripped off a lot so technological yeah. technical complexity is very important to us mm -hmm. in investment because it makes it harder than for the it's a kind mm -hmm. of ip protection that doesn't require a legal structure that's mm -hmm. right. We didn't get IP protection for seven years. It took us to get our initial IP. We applied for the patent. I was the, the lead on the patent 2011. We got it when we were acquired. Yeah. Why did it take so long? It's a long review cycle. Every comment, I don't like this sentence. Okay, here's the answer. Yeah. Six months goes by. <laughs> like, I mean, it was a nightmare dealing with the patent office, frankly. Yeah. And I'm glad we got it, the patent and I'm proud of having a patent here, but it was not helpful to us strategically. We never had to switch the reviewer. You know, we worked with the same reviewer all eight years. Oh, I just imagine the life changes they went through during this one patent <laughs> review process. Oh, yeah. I had I like know. two well, children well, during it. So why do you think people don't fill in these gaps? I mean, so when I you mentioned Excel, Excel looks really familiar. It's a little better. Yeah. Office, you can tell the bits of the code that are from the original, what, Windows 95. I mean, there's still some bits in there. eBay. It looks like a big fat target to me. Oh Why don't my gosh. So I, I actually stuff. learned a lot from yeah. um, a young founder, a 17 year old founder. I think he was from Russia. Incredible mobile software developer can build anything literally. And he's telling me about this photo sharing app that he's working on with his friends. And it is beautiful, but you know, there's thousands of photo sharing apps yeah. out there. And so I look at him and I look at him in the eyes and I say, Hey, why are you building this? You can build anything. Why not help businesses? And uh -huh. without skipping a beat, he says to me, enterprise software is for old people. <laughs> <laughs> I learned so much from that conversation. I think part of it is founders want to solve problems or, or the best founders who will actually see success. They have to work on problems that they're passionate about, that they actually, you know, domain expertise, they have to understand. And one, mm -hmm. they have to feel so vehemently passionate about or, you know, whether it's hatred or whether they love mm. it, to want to work on this for the next 20 years. And a lot of the times we hear founders pitching us startups that just, they sound like a good idea. And it's like, why do you care about this? Why do you want to yeah. dedicate the next decade of your life to it? Because it's not going to be fun. Sometimes you hear these magical answers and it's like, I believe you.
there's so much passion just exuding out of your body right now that I actually believe you. I believe your story. Do you, do you want me to give you one example? Yeah, go ahead. Help now. Do you remember that example? Oh, yeah. 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 It, like in India, it turns out there's no ambulance service when 911. It's ambulances are private carriers, normally a village based. And so one, this founder was like, why, why are you doing this? Tracy asked the question, like, why are you working on this? And he's like, because my dad was having a heart attack and we needed to get an ambulance and we couldn't get one quickly. Mm-hmm. And thankfully his dad lived. But yeah. that story is just like, okay. That's the reason you're doing this. You saw firsthand your dad having a heart attack and the fear of trying to get an ambulance help and just not having it. And yeah. so they help now. It's like a simple number you call and then it's like, you know, Uber for ambulance, sure, yeah. for lack of a better term, but it's a network of ambulance drivers that are shared so that you get yeah. a response. That's kind of cool. You know? Yeah. And it's a region we've never been to. I'd like to see it someday. It's, it's just something we don't understand. But it was so compelling to hear his story that we couldn't help but have to fund it. Do you do a lot of international stuff? I mean, COVID. We have a couple in Latam, a couple in India, a couple in Asia, and a couple in Africa. But that's it. I think we'd like more. Yeah, uh, would like, you? Yeah, we'd like more international investments than we have. The, the talent of the world can't all be happening in the states, right? And if you look at the global economy, even though it's still number one, it's just a small chunk. Oh, of I know. I tell people that as they say. The U.S. is in decline, and I always tell them it's relative decline. We're, we're doing as well as we were ever doing, but other people have picked up the pace, you know? Yeah. And so, of yeah. course, we're not going to have our aggregate value of our share is bigger, but the proportional share is smaller. Yeah. It's like, well, I can, I can live with that. I mean, that's good. Any favorite regions? How about Europe? Do you do much in Europe? I'll tell you why. I talked to a bunch of Germans yesterday. And there's a startup community now in Berlin, you know, that you didn't have like five years ago. So they're all, and they're all, what they said, they said two things. Yeah, we get it. Need to have startups need to come up with innovations. Yeah. But we're worried that we're, our culture is risk averse. And so do you have favorite regions? Do you have places you want to, why did you pick the ones you picked? It's a bit of a funnel thing too, right? I mean, which ones pitched us, right? Which ones are actively going out? So we saw a lot at YC. And so India has a lot of, you know, innovative factors, I suppose. And, you know, we also see a lot from Nigeria, I would say. It's another really innovative part of the world. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then Latam, I know it's like a huge region, but there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on in Latam. As far as Germany goes, I actually, sometimes we work with VCs or venture capitalists, you know, just, just, maybe for mm-hmm. a little bit of chatting about the market, similar conversations yeah. to this. One, one I talked to is uh, Fundamental. I work with them from time to time, just kind of chatting about companies and construction internationally in the US. So mm-hmm. I, I see a lot more activity in Europe than I used to. We funded a company called Meet Anyway, and they're based out of Berlin also. A Zoom competitor. Sometimes countries prefer to use their own video platform. Yeah, you know, I think with international markets, I mean, aside from the challenges of the region, as we saw with Help Now, you know, you you get sick, you get hurt, you need to go to the hospital and you can't get an ambulance. We tried to sell PlanGrid internationally. The last Mm -hmm. two years, we were still running it, you know, as we we looked at double growth every single year. And it's like, okay, how are we going to climb this mountain this year? It's like, clearly we need to go out into international markets. And so... Aside from productizing it and like mm-hmm. internationalizing the product, part of it was how do we distribute it in these international mm-hmm. regions? Oh, okay. So yeah. it was it was easier in some countries. It was very hard in some countries, and I think we got to see firsthand certain countries like Germany and their propensity to buy from yeah. 
their own people versus yeah. buying from Americans. Germany and so, Japan, both of those countries, they yeah, buy the same way. And same thing with France. And I, I think that that really biased our opinion on whether American software companies can go into those regions. Yeah, certainly true. Although I was talking to a Japanese official the other day, and he said a lot of the Japanese software is actually still written in China. So mm. it's like they're mm. subcontracting it out. Interesting. They yeah. use a lot of United States software, but what the general perspective is that you have to have a Japanese office with Japanese employees. Yeah. That's that's one requirement. And then you can, they're fine doing business with international companies, but you really do need the yeah, presence locally. Yeah. I so saw that with Autodesk. Relationship-based business when it comes to enterprise software. Yeah, I got to sell at Autodesk. I got to work with the Jap- Japan team for Autodesk mm-hmm. and they were very impressive. Mm-hmm. And that also showed me how as a startup, I never would have been able to go into yeah, Japan yeah. like that. Autodesk had like so much support there locally yeah. that I wasn't able to give. We did the same uh, thing with Nordics for yeah. Autodesk as well. Getting to see that firsthand was interesting. And it's like, oh, that's why we can't sell into the Nordics. Oh, because they've got this beautiful <laughs> brick office right in yeah. Copenhagen and these really smooth salesmen that I like very much. They're, they're really nice guys and girls. And you know, we could only sell internationally. We could sell, we could sell in Dubai pretty well. Right. Not that big of a contract. Australia, Canada, we we grew pretty well in Canada too. Places that bought you American, really places that already had a business relationship with the United States. The fact that you could offer stuff on this, this internet thing didn't (laughs) change that. I mean, it's like, Oh no. And when you're doing, when you're doing deep vertical enterprise sales, no, it doesn't make a difference. Internet. I mean, so much of our, our success at a company when we sell software into it is, is deployment and mm -hmm. training. And that has to happen in, in the the right language. It has to happen in the right, you know, the way they build the culture, et cetera. And so really having to build a presence in that country for us to be successful at all. They literally, have different job personas, not just names, not just like, oh, superintendent in one country or supervisor in the other. These roles are completely different as well as the buying patterns and usage oh. patterns and who makes the decisions. So there's all kinds of interesting uh, perspectives. There. You, we look at a labor shortage in the United States when it comes to the construction industry, yeah. and that's not a problem in Asia Pacific, right? They could have thousands of people working on the job site and they can turn over the next thousand the next day. And I think that has to do with local regulation and policies, right? We've got very strong unions here. We've got very strong trades here, mm-hmm. um, which is not the case out in other regions. So they deal with other problems. So we're at the approaching the end of the hour. What did I miss? You know, what, how, do you think the, how do you think the VC world is going to change in the next few years? I mean, what are the trends you're seeing for change? It's got a lot of money right now. There's a lot yeah. of capital in VC. It came right about the time, I maybe am ignorantly noticing this, but it came right about the time that all the weird stuff happened with meme stocks and AMC and GameStop. All of that caused a lot of money to start going into VC because I think people became uncomfortable with the yeah. public markets. But that's maybe me just being a bit naive. Regardless, there's it's flush. There's a lot of money in VC right now. No, I see that a lot in the stock market is there's too much money chasing Mm-hmm. dogs that that aren't gonna certainly live up to and it's kind of ridiculous i love periods like this i love easy money periods because then a monkey could be a good stock picker right because yeah. you you know like i bought i bought macy's my wife said why did you buy macy's <laughs> <laughs> but it's gone up like a hundred percent you know so it's like wow look i'm a genius no it has nothing to do with my abilities <laughs> yeah, it's every everyone who was in the public markets last year did well as long as yeah yeah, so um, I think, I think you know, venture capital, it's 
they will always be the middle men and women when it mm. comes to funding technologies. I think my hope is that we start backing renewable energy again. I think the industry did well in the early 2010s. And then I think mm. everyone just sort of got low returns from, yeah. so, you know, we think about, sorry, Solyndra, Solyndra yeah. as an example, we think about yeah. the other solar panel companies, but I think with the new climate report that just came out yesterday, it's like, we have no, we have no choice, but to try to make renewable energy cheaper for the world because we need more of it with our growing population and clearly it's not sustainable. That was going to be my last question is we haven't we haven't talked about sustainability. Mm. So how would you how would you actually operationalize that? I mean when you when you're looking for a company to invest in, where does sustainability fit into that? This is really challenging. So as a YC partner with access to capital outside of my own pockets, I loved supporting what I would call hard technology, which a lot of sustainability falls under. One company I'm thinking of in particular recaptures the the output from cooling towers in large scale farming. The cooling towers are giant towers that, I mean, immense. And they have this device that captures it. It's like, well, you know, same question. Why are you working on this? It's like, well, my dad owns a giant ranch in like South America and I could develop it there. It's like, I have a PhD in whatever, you know? So these guys, I mean, and gals are awesome. And we love supporting them from a venture capital perspective. When it comes to personal investment, I admit, I know nothing about the science here. I I know a lot about technology as far as mathematics and science and computer science, but I know nothing about, you know, besides for what I read in the paper, what, you know, the recent UN report says, I don't know much out of of climate change. So I like supporting it, but to be honest, the capital that those companies need is so beyond my abilities as an investor. We're small, we're angel investors. You know, we do small time investment. The capital they require is in the millions and sometimes just even get out the door. It's like $10 million Mm -hmm. of capital. So this is a chance for more institutional investors, I think, to step up. And whenever I work with institutional investors, I like to support this. But personally, as an investor, I just don't have the capital to help it the way it needs to be helped. Mm -hmm. I know I said that was the last question, but I was kidding. Keep going. This this really is the last question. So one of the things I worry about is that all the things you've been describing is people who see an opportunity or passionate about it, know how to make it work. Are we doing something wrong? Or are there enough people like that in the pipeline? Because oh. when I look at, so like in DC, when you look at a lot of the schools, yeah. it's it's a rare set that would do that. And, you know, in some ways we, we tried, we're trying here to figure out what the difference is between industrial age education and information age yeah. education. So we have a school system that's really good at turning out factory workers. Oh my God, I'm gonna, I, I got too excited. I want Tracy to respond. Uh, <laughs> okay. Universal childcare. We need uh, to take care of our children yeah. and it's really hard to. I say that as a parent, you know, I'm not, I'm not the one currently, you know, pregnant, but it's, it's a lot of work. And I think that giving early ch- development resources yeah. to children at a very young age is so important for our society as well as education yeah. and nutrition. So I think these people, I think it's everybody. It's like the spark of life. I believe it to be human, but I believe that humanity, like you're saying, if we're pounding out factory workers, we're not going to see that spark of humanity. We need to see it with a lot of care and support. I really love that you brought up child care because I, it seems unrelated, but it's totally related. It's related. Yeah. We look at the the problems of our time and it's massive and it's overwhelming. But when we look at the people and the leadership trying to solve these problems and they look 
predominantly one gender and one race, it just means that we're missing out on a lot of people who could help out. And so part of that is making sure that half of humanity is part of the the, the, the solution, right? Or at least mm-hmm. using their brains and hard work to try to be a part of the solution and to help that other half of humanity. I'm speaking of women, we have to make it so they can actually go back into the workforce. Yeah. I mean, I think COVID-19 mm-hmm. has shown us that yeah. when things are bad, like a pandemic, a global health pandemic, and a huge portion of a population exit yeah. the workforce, it's just telling that we don't have the right safety nets in place for them. Yeah. Distressing news, the recent reports, distressing, yeah. honestly, for, for trying to get female, female leadership, female engineers, you know, the, the recent jobs reports were, were unfortunate. This was one of my obsessions in grad school is the distribution of talent distributed equally across. That's in fact, there was some indication that actually women were actually a little more. <laughs> I believe it. So, you know, just like, I, that sounds weird, but it's this was just, Makes you sense. know, had a computer that could access, it was called the National Opinion Research Center, NORC. And so it had survey data, it had census data, anonymized. And so you could type in stuff like this. It was just fun. It's like, what is, you could you could go correlation hunting. And it's like, I didn't pursue it long enough to know if there was a strong correlation that women had tended to be better at this stuff than men. But that was my suspicion when I, when I went into other stuff. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Well, did we miss anything? Any, any final? No, this was a great conversation. Thank Thanks you. for the conversation, Jim. Yeah, thank you very much for the conversation. Good seeing you again. Nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.